Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I have a very special episode today because I'm not in San Francisco. I'm in fact in Berlin for Blockchain Week. And as many of my listeners know, I'm very much into techno music and things like that. But as a hard stop rule of mine, I have voided partying for the last 48 hours before uh, recording any episodes. I'm very clear-headed right now, but we'll we'll save maybe some of that for this weekend. Uh, anyways, I'm very excited to be in Berlin. I just uh, was at Web3 Summit, and I'm hanging out here with one of the well-known uh, VCs in this space. So I'm very excited to announce that I have Lasse Closen from 1KX Capital here with me as my guest. Lasse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I really like the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very excited to pick your brain on the Berlin scene in particular. But before we get into that, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background, how you got into crypto and specifically into venture capital. I am uh, was a software entrepreneur in Berlin. I've been here for, I think, 10 years. And uh, I'm also really a product nerd. So in, I think, 2012, I really wanted to um, feel what it's like to pay with a mobile phone. At that time, I had only been previously to Japan and saw people being basically 10 years ahead of us. And at that time, Bitcoin was the only way to do it. There was no uh, mobile PayPal. There was nothing else. And so I bought a bunch of Bitcoin and uh, got an out-of-store Android APK, which was the first mobile Bitcoin wallet in the world because we apparently have the first place in the world here in Berlin that accepted Bitcoin. That's the Room 77 Burger Bar. And uh, yeah, and I went to pay for it. Before, actually, this is funny, people would come with their laptop and like manually type in the public key to pay. So this was really, uh, you know, hardcore Bitcoin enthusiasts who, uh, you know, obviously didn't care so much about the usability. And then, uh, then yeah, at this stage when I was there, someone had built an out-of-store Android APK, to, so the first mobile wallet. I used that to pay a couple of Bitcoin, I think, for burger and fries. <laughs> and it was really great. It was very fast. It was very, I really loved the UX. I was really focused on, on UX of mobile apps at that time because we were, Chris and I, the other partner at 1KX, we built mobile internet companies. And, uh, and so it was great, but... I didn't think they were going to win the adoption side. The dynamics of payment networks are incredibly difficult. You basically need 80-90% merchant adoption first, and then you also need to win consumers over. And we had, if you look at the conversion funnels of mobile apps, it's extremely depressing because you have around, you know, let's say 100 people click on a link and say, yes, this app is interesting. I actually want to install this. And then... 30 will actually install the app. So you have 70% of people who are just like, can't be bothered. I think now actually the benchmark is 20%. So I imagine it's just like 80%, just like maybe they, they're not on Wi-Fi. They think this uses a lot of data. I have no idea. It's so depressing. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, you know, a monumental efforts in, you know, converting a lot of merchants, then monumental effort, and then converting customers or new and, and consumers to new payment system. And at that time, Bitcoin's narrative was only payments. The store of value thing came later. And at that time, I was definitely not visionary enough to think that, uh, you know, maybe there's a store of value story here too. So I essentially had useless Bitcoin left on my phone. And then I met Amir Taki mm-hmm. and I think some other people involved in Ethereum at a dinner in 2013 at the end or something. And I heard about Ethereum. 
and that was that seemed more interesting, much more interesting. They were very good at communicating back then already. Um, kind of the big vision of Ethereum now. Then I I thought. You know, just a simple fact that you could sort of, I know that picking applications is very hard, right? And, and Bitcoin was just one payment use case. And Ethereum sort of presented itself as a platform where many different applications, insurance, you know, whatever, maybe payment itself can be successful. And I as investor and sort of the layer, you know, the Fed protocol thesis kind of originated from there. I think they pitched that and I thought, okay, this is a much easier investment. And then also if this turns out the way these guys are pitching it, I'm going to look super smart. And if not, nobody's going to know that I invested here. So it was kind of a win-win for me. I participated in the ICO and watched the space very carefully in the sidelines. Which ICO was that? Ethereum. The Ethereum. The Ethereum ICO. And watched the space pretty carefully, but on the sidelines. And uh, then end of 2016, we had another hype cycle sort of coming up. And I actually think they're very necessary to push a new technology into the awareness of mainstream consumers. It's just very difficult. It takes a long time and you need a lot of momentum and things like that. So I was like, okay, this is great. And then Chris and I, who was my CTO at the time, we we looked into basically blockchain to see if we as application layer entrepreneurs can build something there. Because that's what we saw our forte. So I would say probably like 70% software or 60% software and 40% sort of markets, commercialization, rollouts. Um, and then we realized that it's a little bit too early for something, let's say, like the Uber on the blockchain, et cetera. And that sort of was our specialty and that the protocols are, you know, still a little immature. So there's still a lot of work needed for protocol entrepreneurs and which, you know, we're, we're not protocol entrepreneurs. That's really 100% tech. But got very, very excited about the Fed protocol thesis just as an investor because we know on average VCs all lose money. It's extremely hard to predict which applications will win and consumer or even enterprise adoption. VCs don't know how to do it either. I would I would make that claim. I think you have some VCs that have exceptional brand. And in the A round, when it's kind of clear already that this is actually, you know, this is a hockey stick, there is this demand for the application, then you can sort of, you know, muscle your way in with brand or money. Anyway, so I thought this is going to be way easier. So as an investor, I can participate and, and move this space forward. And at that time, we really just thought about that to move the space forward so that we can come in as application-like entrepreneurs. And um, the rest is history. Now, nah, that yeah. sounds like too much, but um, yeah, that's like- No, another. that's a really good overview. And when I have come to uh, Berlin, I'm, to- I'm totally noticing like the distinguishment between the Berlin scene and the San Francisco scene. The San Francisco scene- does admit that, in fact, uh, you know, even still, it's quite early, but they are focused more on thinking more about the user and building consumer-facing applications and proper businesses that are ready to go. But here in in Berlin, I've noticed that the entrepreneurs here are still focusing on the lower layer problems in the space, right? And engineering, maybe even over-engineering, and thinking about uh, sustainability, like how can we these inherent design trade-offs that we're making now be ready for the next 50 years of blockchain, right? That's that's kind of the key difference that I've noticed in the space. Would you say it's still too early to get into the application layer business at, at the state of blockchains as it is? I think it's uh, it's actually advanced pretty fast, and there's definitely applications now that are super promising, and we're starting to f- see the first. I just someone just showed me. Uh, I think it was Pedro from Wallet Connect, just on the sideline, yeah, showed me yeah. just Argent mm-hmm. and how you can actually sort of have just a mobile bank account, mobile savings account, with all these transactions such as token allowances, etc., all abstracted away. 
just a couple of clicks and you've deposited money into a savings account. So I think there I would say, I think the, other, the whole stack came together. I think you have uh, Ethereum pretty slow, but that's fine. I think for high value, low transaction volume, uh, Ethereum is fantastic. The whole scalability uh, debate was a little bit maybe misguided or too early. I don't, you know, honestly, we don't really need CryptoKitty on Ethereum. That's fine on a, you know, DPoS chain or something with lower security parameters. I think that's fine. Yeah, so I'd say sort of decentralized finance, maybe a simple um, application of a savings account there. We have the whole stack together and- It's coming together. It's coming together and you see good sort of application layer entrepreneurs coming in. Which is the key difference, I think, from just a couple of years ago. You you had to be technical to be in this space and, and to be a CEO in this space because there's no proper APIs or any any abstractions on top of the low level technology that makes it easy for a product person to come in or you know, uh, God forbid, a sales guy to come in and try to run a business. You have to understand what's going on there because in the low level code, because you're directly interfacing with low level code, and it's starting to get a little bit better. There's some APIs for, uh, I think, uh, like set protocol, for instance, has an API where you can just kind of pass it like uh, a regular JSON, right? And you don't have to work with Web3. They have their own sort of wrapper around Web3. So in that sense, it's coming together. And now you're seeing a different breed of entrepreneur. Yeah, we're actually really excited about that type of entrepreneur coming in. We had yesterday, we had sort of a, a small investor summit and I was talking with Niklas Brandt from Lake Star Partners. Uh, it's a huge, it's, I think the biggest late stage uh, VC fund in the space. And sort of in Europe, we not quite yet have these sort of typical venture entrepreneur coming in, which I would say, right, 50, 60% software, but a lot of sort of understanding of market rollout and, and strategy and commercialization. I think globally, we're seeing the first really good ones come in, right? We have uh, InstaDap, I think, yeah. would be an example. However, they still actually have to build a lot of smart contracts with Solidity. We actually have initiated a podcast purely focused on DAP developers called The Wizard of the DAPs. Mm-hmm. And the founder of InstaDap was on it and said that simple things like, you know, they integrate with uh, Maker and Kyber and they're on different test nets. So they had to deploy the mainnet to actually start testing, right? So there is actually still some pretty basic stuff missing. And there's there, they're actually there sort of uh, smart contract layer is actually pretty thick still. Uh, but I think we're getting there. I would also make the claim that Arjun probably are also really good smart contract developers. But I think we're getting there. And I'm very, very excited about the, uh, I think with LivePeer, we're starting to see the first sort of abstraction that you have a separate typical for-profit venture entity on top that uh, yeah, builds sort of the the second layer software uh, that makes it easy for an enterprise developer to interact yeah. with because enterprise developers will probably not interact with protocols directly. That's too difficult. We're pretty excited about that. We're we're monitoring that very carefully because I think that's sort of the next stage that you have, you know, really good entrepreneurs from venture that are just seeing this as the next platform and they want to build on top of that. And hopefully even independently sort of, uh, you know, as we see with Ethereum, there's very organic, tons of developers are just building on top of Ethereum versus a few other, I think EOS, for example, was like, ah, we have a billion dollars and we're just going to buy developers. And I think, you know, I think it does work that way. Like even these ecosystem funds were very bearish on them. Um, And, you know, it reminds me of SAP had a HANA fund, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago. And they were like, ah, we have a $300 million fund and we fund startups that were built with SAP HANA database. And it just attracted like absolutely the worst talent because I think really good talent, software talent, they want to have the freedom of technology choices, 
right? That usually that's actually what developers fight the most about is like actually technology choices, which technologies to use. And if they have a mandate to just use like, uh, you know, excuse by French, but some shitty database that yeah. a corporate is pushing on top of them, it'll drive them nuts. Or it's some, you know, sort of mercenary type developer that just doesn't care anyways. Mm-hmm. They don't want to uh, uh, compromise their vision and constrain it to one platform that's paying them money because even if they are that type of person, some other platform is going to come them and offer them $1 more than the last guy, right? And then they're going to hop over to the platform offering them more money. So that strategy of just being the guy with the biggest uh, checkbook like doesn't often work in crypto because the real true crypto heads are very, very passionate about the permissionless technology and the ability to build applications for anywhere in the world and interactivity and, you know, the whole spiel. And it, it's they're not willing to make that trade-off for and the I th- dollars. I would say this even applied, this applies to software. You want uh, visionaries, not mercenaries. This was a statement from, I think, Paul Graham about Airbnb and then the rocket internet here, which right. is really a bunch of mercenaries. You know, it was Airbnb versus whatever clone they they uh, sort of stomped out of the ground, and and in the end, Airbnb won. So I think even a traditional venture tech, you need missionary founders and not the mercenaries. And I think you have the same in crypto, because you really want you want to you want to be a platform. If you're talking about smart contract platforms, that attracts these sort of what we call like one percent type of engineers. They're all mission driven. They all uh, have uh, you know extreme sort of need for autonomy, and someone telling them like, no, sorry, you need to build this thing on EOS, it's just not going to work. So uh, I think we covered a lot of ground here on what, in kind of a backhanded way, but what the, what the current venture environment looks like, right? We're seeing more of these founders that are more product oriented. Things are looking like layer three could be a possibility. Slowly starting to see Slowly. the first promising signs. <laughs> yes. Yes. But if you Take a look at your thesis online and, you know, maybe this is one of those things where you don't update the website for three years, right? You're very focused on crypto economics and token models and and, and that kind of a game. And uh, I was talking your crunch base and the past investments you've made, and it's all very like layer two protocols, layer one uh, blockchains, things like that. How have you shifted the investment thesis to accommodate more of the style of entrepreneur kind of where the market is right now? What's the new investment thesis, if you will? Yeah, so this is uh, this is sort of, I think, one of the most critical things as a fund. So we think about it this way, that if you understand blockchains, and for us, the, the core feature they provide is trust. Trust is a super abstract concept, but it's it's omnipresent. Just think about when you're crossing, you know, the when you're doing a pedestrian, you're crossing the street, right? You trust that the traffic light system works. You trust that around 30 people around you are going to use it as well, right? And if one person doesn't, you get run over by a car. If you eat food, right, there's so much trust implied into it. And and so there is obviously the opportunity to then, uh, I think there's also a pretty interesting number that it's around, it's estimated to be around 28 trillion actually a year is spent on establishing trust globally. And that number comes from that 35% of US employment is actually trust establishing jobs, auditors, judges, law enforcement, attorneys, right. et cetera. Anyway, so it's really huge and it's omnipresent because trust affects almost everything we do in society and commerce. And so then there's also a ton, ton of uh, confusion, right? So everybody wants to use a blockchain for everything. And we just saw that that also blockchains mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And so we thought, okay, A, we have this complexity that, that blockchain could be, you know, applied to almost anything. Plus, it's a very volatile space. You know, it's like estimated that crypto, the finance ecosystem is about 25 times faster than legacy financial ecosystems. 
you've got a, a volatility that would make like a natural gas trader dizzy. And so like, how do you navigate this and have like a, you know, like a, a, a strong thesis that's still flexible to, to adapt to this really fast changing space, but also like gives you conviction when the markets like temporarily turn against you and doesn't kind of make you flip back and forth with every sort of narrative or meme that typically lasts about four to six months in crypto, right? Mm -hmm. They change very quickly. And uh, we've seen other people in the space and funds kind of try to chase those narratives. And it usually doesn't work out. So yeah, so I think our thesis is that we were token maximalists. We actually just ordered new shirts uh, and they have, they say token maximalist yeah, okay. on the back. There's a pretty simple reason for that. We just, A, software networks or software is eating the world. So software networks are becoming ever more important and bigger. And there's some software networks that are just extremely important for society in the world. They have sort of high public importance. And we would question whether the typical for-profit company is hierarchical, you know, vertical for-profit company is the best structure to accommodate that. And we have especially two doubts. The first one is complexity. So there's just like a limit of software code complexity that a typical company can handle. And then stuff like Equifax happens, right? Yeah. Uh, very serious mistakes. And I mean, it's we're getting numb to it, but just very massive data leaks happen all the time, right? So that's the first one. And the second, I think, deficit we see for these companies uh, as being the structure for these large public important software networks is the incentives. So as a for-profit entity, essentially, you just want to sell the cheapest thing at the highest price and as quickly as possible. And then we have a very specific examples like Boeing and the recent very tragic crashes where they wanted to beat Airbus to the market in this very specific segment of airplanes. And they also wanted to cut costs. So they outsourced very critical software functionalities to like $9 an hour mm -hmm. dev shop. And um, that was, that caused a crash. And then, you know, two crashes went down. A lot of people died. And so, yeah, we were like, we, 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 I think we questioned whether for these very large uh, software networks, a typical for-profit company is is the right structure. And then on the other side, we have uh, a very hard time seeing how a normal company like that will be able to compete with these crypto networks, token networks, whatever you want to call them. And the short way to say that is imagine Bitcoin or Ethereum had been a private company. I think nobody would have cared. Right? That's like the very quick way to summarize that. We see specifically sort of three reasons why these for-profit entities are going to have a very hard time competing with an you know, open source, fee-less protocol tokenized network. And um, the first reason is that they're almost, they're better than free. So A, I remember once a VC told me it's really hard to compete with free. That's like the most dangerous thing in the world for, you know, when you're typical Silicon Valley style for-profit kind of venture. Anyone, yeah. right? So they're, they're better than free. And, and, and why I'm saying that, because you have now an, uh, a, a token that grants you the right to use it or the utility or, you know, sort of the access to be a supplier on the network. But then it's, it's, it's a digital cooperative kind of, right? Once you have that token, which is itself tradable and an investable asset, but you have that and then you, it's almost unlimited use of the network, either as a user for the utility or as let's say a supplier on this like tokenized marketplace. And there are like fees, but the fees are not to enrich anybody. The fees are, for example, just to prevent spam, right? This is sort of the, the, the idea behind gas. And there's overall the networks actually uh, has strong incentives to reduce the fees constantly because it's an open sort of competition globally. 
At the same time, while you have this token, right, there might actually be an upside. There might be sort of the price develops if there's more demand for it. It might grant you governance rights, some sovereignty over a very important contentious decision of the network. Mm-hmm. So that's the first reason that we say they're better than free. So that's really hard to compete with as a company that kind of has to squeeze out margins wherever they can and profit and ideally just increase that. The second reason why we think it'll be hard to compete is basically innovation. Innovation is a numbers game. The more experiments happen on top of the platform, the more likely you find a use case, a killer use case, or a killer use case develops. So you can see in the app stores, uh, one in 10,000 apps is successful, right? So it takes 10,000 apps that just sit there and die. There were developers behind that. They put you know their heart, blood, sweat, and tears into it for years, but it just didn't go anywhere. And then one of them does. So if you have permissionless innovation, meaning like anybody can build anything on Ethereum, for example, et cetera, and there is no editor process, there's no, you know, it's completely permissionless. It's just hard to compete in the sheer number of experiments that happen on top versus, you know, you have a review process, et cetera. It just doesn't scale to this number. So for us, it's just a probability game that the more experiments happen on top, the more likely amazing new use cases develop. And uh, when you're permissionless, you will just get more higher numbers than- So do you want to invest in the experiments or the platform facilitating the experiments? The platform facilitating the experiments. Okay. All right. And then the third one, and I know I'm taking a long time to explain our thesis. It is a long thesis. Yes. um, (laughs) And uh, we are actually working on kind of, maybe hopefully uh, having a very succinct blog post about this and then kind of uh, shorten it down. I'd be the first to consume it, by the way. (laughs) And, And the third part is actually trust. Roughly, if you understand how blockchains works, they really are trustless, which means that product is trust. So if you want to build a very large network, you need buy-in from almost everyone, right? From what used to be your customers or suppliers, but now they're more than that. They're stakeholders, right? Because of this token, this sort of digital cooperative token. You need buy-in from regulators. You need buy-in from the government. Uh, you can see how quickly they push back against the Facebook coin because companies are not trusted. And especially companies like Facebook. You need buy-in from the media, from pretty much anyone else. And trust in business is actually declining rapidly and it's almost at historic lows. So we think that a network, and we've seen this, right, with Ethereum and Bitcoin, they just they have an easier time gathering trust than a for-profit entity. Yeah, so I'm going to try to summarize all this, but basically what you're saying is there's trusts at corporate trust, corporate mistrust, government mistrust, all of that, people's expectations from these uh, different structures that we're all participating in are sort of just at all-time lows. And we have this new elegant structure that uh, allows trust to be in the product, right? And it's also cut down costs uh, to to a very low level. So it's almost like a 10x better, you know, I think YC always asks, if your product is 10x better than the original product that you're trying to disrupt. This, by the way, is why we call it 1KX. So we actually think that some of these networks are going to be a thousand times better than what exists before. Oh, okay. Not just 10x, yeah. Okay, okay. Not just 10x, okay. Yeah, so how do you, and I'm missing a lot of the thesis here as well. You're also token maximalist. How do you express all of these investments across the different opportunities that you're you're presented with. Like what happens, for instance, over 2018 when tokens were essentially out of fashion, right? Or 2019 uh, when tokens were, uh, people aren't really selling tokens anymore. Uh, companies are more often selling equity. How do you begin to express your investments then? Yeah, very good question. And so this is exactly why we felt we needed a, a sort of a guiding thesis. 
simple simple way to put it is large token networks. So we invest in those. And then obviously it doesn't make sense at the time, right? I'm not, you know, as we mentioned, Uber on the blockchain, not just yet. I feel also there that requires a lot of buy-in from or understanding of this concept from the from end consumers and you know, let's say taxi drivers. And I think we're not just there yet. But for like one chains protocols where you can get a lot of adoption and traction from developers mainly who understand this kind of concept, I think it makes sense. But it's really always about token, open source, fee-less uh, token networks. And yeah, so you had in, uh, you know, end of last year, everybody was yelling like equity, not tokens, and it wasn't fashionable anymore. And uh, we just actually bought a lot more. Because we saw the, uh, you know, have this as a fund, you just have to kind of hopefully come up with a flexible enough thesis, but you need to have sort of a guideline and stick to it. And um, again, we saw people chasing first ICOs, then security tokens. For a while, everybody thought that was a thing. And uh, then we saw these, you know, people like, ah, we're doing quant funds now, you know, like market neutral quant funds. And yeah, that was great. And if you, if you had that idea in 2017, while well, everybody was busy sort of buying tokens and ICOs, if you were kind of the contrarian. I thought, no, I think it's market neutral quant funds. And you set that up. It takes about a year. And then in 2018 was great. But at the, at the end of 2018, after quant funds have done well, you know, you start setting it up. Actually, now I would make the case that probably they, they, the quant funds are underperforming versus Bitcoin, right? Anyway, so so yeah, you need to, we feel we needed to have a thesis that is flexible, but yet gives us strong convictions when the markets like temporarily turn against us. And yeah, for a while, you know, tokens weren't cool anymore. And mm-hmm. I honestly felt that uh, it was probably like a 16Z crypto uh, placeholder and us were kind of the only ones that are really like, no, we have a strong, very, very bullish about sort of tokenized networks. Mm-hmm. Buy when there's blood on the street. Yeah, and it was great. And, you know, the technology just became so much better. The teams and talents just became so much better. Yeah. And the prices were so much lower. So this was like yeah. really a no-brainer. I think... Uh, you know, if you're a, what I call like a natural contrarian, I think that can work out in very big ways. And natural contrarian, I mean, you're not just contrarian because it's cool to be like, you know, always like, oh, what if it's the opposite? And, you know, like always try to be yeah, the guy. Being a pessimistic hedge fund manager is actually quite fashionable. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, and you literally just like, okay, yeah, no, if, you know, everybody's saying this, so I'm going to say the opposite. And it's kind of, you know, but you see something that you think is true and most of the people just don't see it for whatever reason. I think that's a good way to be a contrarian. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think also as the narratives very quickly shift, we might actually be with our thesis, we might be not contrarian contrarian anymore. Maybe, I don't know, we have sort of, I don't like the term alt season, but, you know, maybe we have sort of right now, there's a strong Bitcoin dominance. So a lot of people are like wondering, oh, maybe we should like, put everything into Bitcoin. And, uh, and that might reverse as well, right? And then we have a period where, you know, it's all about tokens again, maybe. And then again, we're not contrarian anymore, but that's fine. That's just because we're following the thesis. We're not trying to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Mm-hmm. One thing we didn't cover is your uh, time horizon, right? So well, let's say all season does come in a couple of years. Are you going to take some money off the table at that time? Or are you in it for, what's your, what's your long-term time horizon? In that sense, we're very similar to uh, a venture capitalist. So long time horizons, very, very big outcomes. But we think the space will be much faster than a typical VC fund that has about a 10-year time horizon. We think it'll probably be three to five years. And for one specific reason, that the space is so fast, and it is because these token networks, because they have this sort of new alternative business model that allows them to be open source. And this is amazing and I think almost unappreciated for the whole sector. That means that it's built once and then used by thousands, 
right? The second, even the specs, right? They're not hidden behind closed doors or confidential, right? They, from day one, because they want to build a community that trusts them, they, even their specs are public, right? And yeah. immediately you have 50 other teams that are all over it and are integrating the best design decisions into theirs, right? And yeah. the same with the code they build. The second is like somewhere public and it's, they, people take it. And so we think this is just the, this is such a rocket fuel for innovation. Because if you think about it in the real economy now, how many companies are building the same stuff behind closed doors? Nobody knows what, you know, everything's confidential. Uh, it's all duplicate. It's a really huge waste of resources. And this is also such a shift that this, uh, it's something that makes me just in a very macro sense, so bullish on, on, on what we call crypto. Yeah. I definitely agree with you that it is going to happen faster this time around. People always compare it to the adoption curve of the internet and how quickly the internet blew up. We already have the internet, right? We already have delivery costs at, uh, close to zero and distribution to a worldwide audience. We have developers not having to move to Silicon Valley to start a company. All they need is an internet connection, right? So I believe that any sort of technological revolution, it, it tends to sort of compound on the last one. And 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 the the time frames are going to get shorter this uh, time around. So it makes me it makes me very bullish. So one thing I'll ask you: when you're in, investing in networks, oftentimes these uh, these networks are built on layer one smart contract platforms that are at least available and ready for uh, you know for developers to deploy something on. So right now, that's basically just Ethereum, right? If you want to look at more of the trustless stuff that you like to invest in, do you think? of those as Ethereum projects, or do you think that uh, they have the ability, these layer two uh, protocols that have the ability to kind of hop over to other smart contract platforms given, you know, that's that's the right move to make? Um, yeah, that really depends on very specific variables. Yeah, like um, I, I'm thinking, you know, are you are you just really just long Ethereum right now? Uh, or Yeah, this is a really good question. I think, you know, developer mindshare is probably our number one metric. And not just sort of, again, this enterprise uh, mercenary type of developer, but this sort of 1% missionary developer. And their Ethereum is very, very far ahead. We're co-organizers of ETH Berlin. Uh, we judge at a lot of the ETH global hackathons, and it's it's really impressive developer community. Polkadot is very interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I don't know. We we generally, we have done a few layer one investments, but they're usually quite differentiated or complementary to Ethereum. I think doing this sort of, ah, they're doing ETH 2.0 before ETH or something like that, we've shied away from that. Outside of Ethereum, do you invest in any pure play cryptocurrencies, any liquid uh, cryptos that have made it home to your portfolio? We actually don't. We don't hold Bitcoin. We don't hold ETH, okay. no large cap. It took us a while to figure it out, but we are really, we're not an a fund for generalist investor that's kind of trying to understand crypto. We're really, uh, we have uh, some of the most sophisticated crypto investors themselves, Dragonfly Capital Partners, L1 Digital, so very specialized crypto fund of funds. Uh, we have some exchanges that invested in us. And so for, especially for these fund of funds that like to compose a basket of different strategies, it's just much better for them to know, okay, tip of the spear kind of first money into protocol networks that's 1kx and then they can build their portfolio right and they have yeah. quant funds etc yeah, it's better to be a pure play uh, investment manager because yes. they're often going to be paired with some other fund manager that doesn't have a correlation to your uh, return exactly right? so yeah. we have low correlation to bitcoin we have low correlation to other managers yeah and sort of the the most of the money comes from these type of investors that like that actually we didn't start 
with that in mind, we started, we're just very strong believers in focus. We saw as software entrepreneurs how important focus was. And there's one founder of Pinterest, every day he wears a t-shirt with it, just focus on it. And it's like, it's so important. And that really, uh, you know, I, I remember that for years. I don't know if he still wears that t-shirt, but <laughs> I remember the story they were saying, um, I think also Paul Graham mentioned that like focus is so important because you want to try to, if you want to develop network effects, you have to try to be the best, whatever it is. And if you're not, then you just narrow down, right? So this is the, you know, I'm the fastest runner in New York. And you'll probably think that's probably not true. Well, who runs on Union Square? And you're like, well, maybe, you know, at one o'clock at night. Okay, I'll give you that, right? <laughs> so the idea is that you just, you narrow down sort of your scope until you're kind of number one. Okay. Once you're number one, you just have to be just a tiny bit better than a number two, but it matters a lot, right? And then you're just number one and it attracts more deal flow, attention, et cetera, whatever. And that sort of was our thinking why we wanted to focus on very technical token network investing uh, and not you know, trade Bitcoin or hold Bitcoin, et cetera. So uh, one part of uh, venture capital, I think that's not spoken about enough is you guys are managing really two different sides, uh, two different relationships, right? You're not only managing uh, founders and sourcing deals and things like that, but you're managing LPs. And uh, to your point about this, yeah, you want to be the number one specific niche fund in what you do, but you also have to convince your LPs that this is a sound investment to to make holistically and it pairs well with the other hedge funds or VC vehicles that they may be investing in. What what are those conversations like? Uh, what kind of partners do you need to get on board that understand your your place in that in that market? Yeah, and this is something we learned. Uh, we spent a lot of time sort of with inbound interest, but people who are just kind of maybe thought they understood Bitcoin and then they just get completely lost. Uh, probably also my failure. I'm, you know, you probably heard, it took me a while to summarize my thesis. And I think for most generalist investors, you really need to tell them like, A, it's going up, all the talent's going there, you should invest in crypto, that's it, right? And so ours obviously is a more complex sort of focus and thesis. And so what we attract is very, very sort of specialist, sophisticated crypto investors who honestly don't want to pay 20% for me to open up a Coinbase account for them and buy Bitcoin, Yeah, right? They can do it themselves. Usually they hold large amounts of Bitcoin. And again, like they, so they, they, it's their selection, how they were, or their choice, how they want to uh, compose the portfolio. Um, and we're just, that is sort of the expectation management, venture style returns, high risk, high upside over a longer period of time. I think every once in a while, the good ones you check in and the good investors we have are, they're similar to investors and founders, sort of VCs, what I do, you just every once in a while check in and, and, and just try to get a sense like how, how do they feel about what they're doing? Uh, are they biting their fingernails and uh, are wondering whether they should do something completely different or not? Uh, so just this morning, had this kind of conversation, just very relaxed breakfast, but you know, just kind of like um, seeing if we still have the same conviction about what we're doing. And, uh, and I think it's a very, that's a very good exercise always to do with your investors to just like almost assume from zero, like, would I do this now? Like if I started from scratch, would I do the same thing again? That's kind of our experience with the investors. So they're not very too specific or like tell us how to construct a portfolio. They just want to know that we, we really a hundred percent in what we're doing. And, uh, again, then they compose their portfolio and choose yeah. their exposure to that. 
And um, this is really important to get the right LPs on board because it ultimately trickles down and affects your founders, right? If you have an LP that's expecting some sort of liquidity or things like that, you're going to make deals with founders that want to exit more quickly, right? Uh, So that there's sufficient liquidity in the portfolio. Uh, and it ultimately, you know, uh, feeds into the advice that you're giving the founders. So it's, it's very important. Yep. Absolutely right. It's the same for startups. Choose your investors carefully if you can. Um, luckily, honestly, as a fund, it's much easier and with our structure because we're an evergreen fund. So we can, uh, onboard new LPs anytime. And so that gives us, we didn't have the need to raise at a specific moment in time, which also for startups was a huge problem when you had to raise because you ran out of money. Uh, and that usually happens to startup. It's just your runway gets shorter and shorter and you get more and more stressed and you have to raise or the whole thing's gonna, you know, uh, fly off the cliff. And that's the worst situation to raise from. And that usually ends up with, and investors have an incredible amount of uh, influence directly or indirectly. And and the same applies for a fund. For us, it's we, we deliberately chose this structure also with the help of Passport Capital. They are also an anchor LP of ours. And uh, they had invested in early in a few of the Silicon Valley crypto funds. And I think back then, nobody knew how to structure those things, right? We have things that are immediately liquid and things that are sort of venture style locked up for a couple of years. And so we have a very good structure uh, as an evergreen fund that can onboard new LPs any month. And so it's a very organic sort of uh, continuous process where we just, you know, people hear about us and they reach out and they already pretty interested in building sort of a, a a portfolio of exposure to crypto. Yeah, we feel very comfortable with that because again, the 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 choice of investors is very important. It trickles down ultimately to the founders, right? If I get, let's assume, a ton of pressure from like a very short-term investor, right? And he pressures me to get liquidity and then it's going to influence how I talk to my founders and that's probably bad. Yeah, definitely. Glad we're touching on this. So let's talk more about founders specifically. Uh, you, you have a thesis, you have a view of how the uh, world is going to come together. How do you go about picking which kind of founders to back? Are you oftentimes looking, thinking about your vision of the world and then going and looking for projects and specific founders or are founders coming to you? And when those found, when you do talk to those founders, what are some immediate qualities that you look for? So the, the process, the source is existing founders usually and some funds uh we don't really do much uh, blogging we actually do zero blogging uh panels etc in our experience it doesn't it's it's not high quality projects so our strategy is to be as helpful as possible to the best founders and then smart new founders actually they don't go to spend three thousand dollars on a disrupt ticket and then try to hustle the vc that's uh, on on stage they actually reach out to existing founders and talk to them or they know them and their friends that went to high school or college together. And then if we're top of mind of the entrepreneurs that recommend us, you should talk to 1KX, you know, and that's worked out pretty well so far. Um, so actually around 90% of the stuff that people send us, it's all through the network. We want to have a look at. First one is very easy, right? So the 10% is you just look at the website, what they're doing. Does this even remotely kind of make sense? And then is it the right team for that, right? If I think crypto is mostly a young person's game. And so an example, right? If you have like three founders that are above 50, one calls himself the president and they want to build a layer one protocol, I don't know, probably not a good fit. Um, so that's the first step. And then the second one is the founders. They are all really different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. A lot of is instincts. So I think when you've been a founder uh, and you've met many different founders, uh, you know they are coming in, in, in all shapes. 
It's really instincts. It's hard to tell, but we, yeah, you have to. Um, and it, hel it helps having been a founder before, right? It helps with the advice that you're giving to future founders. It helps you communicate with them. It helps you determine what a, a good founder looks like. I think so. So we had one sort of inspiration, a VC that backed us. He, um, he always gave us the feeling that he's got our back. And that was just so valuable because actually being a founder is pretty, it's, it's not a nice life most of the time. It's really, yeah, it's it's very difficult. So if you have someone, if you try to just be as supportive as, as possible, that is very, very helpful. And I guess something you can sort of apply uh, as, as a framework is, do we feel like we're working with them? Is this like transparent? Are they aware of short, like, you know, everybody has problems all the time. Yeah. Projects, companies are constantly on fire and that's fine. You just need to know, does that person actually have a, a, a clarity of mind and like a, do they see these problems and have, and are not emotional about them, right? If you, someone's telling you that everything's great and the second you, just even for, as an intellectual exercise, you point out a way that something could not work out and they get super defensive. Uh, it's just something you immediately feel, right? You just get this knot in your chest talking to them and it's like, oh God, this is exhausting. Yeah, it's not the right thing. It's usually very sort of academic or scientific way of um, taking information or, or seeing what the situation is and then saying, yeah, this could be a problem. And then usually they come up with pretty quick ways or suggestions on how they could fix those problems or make it better. I think that's the most general thing that, that as a framework of thinking and being very proactive about problems and being transparent about communicating them and asking for advice and input. Yeah, I would say that's the most general framework. It can apply to all founders, no matter how different their personalities are. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get a little bit more specific here. Um, so as you know, if if your thesis is successful, uh, ICOs may effectively uh, disrupt venture capital as we know it, right? And uh, capital is becoming more, uh, what do you call it, more available, readily available. It's not the scarce resource anymore. How do you think about really adding value beyond the capital that you provide? Take me through, you know, very specific cases with founders and how you've added value. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 really the mission is to give them the sense, like, we've got your back. We're with you and we're going to go through this. Um, for me, that was incredibly valuable. You just, you do have sleepless nights as founders and you just know there's someone that's just not another thing you need to manage and handle, but you know, and that you can confide and trust in. I think that was a huge relief. So we just try to be as helpful as possible. Even in the due diligence, our two fantastic researchers also have taken this really to, to heart. Even the due diligence process should be super helpful. Even if we pass on them, they should have like, hopefully it was helpful questions uh, versus the typical VC, uh, come on, impress me kind of attitude. Because that always drove me nuts. I had like probably 500 VC meetings and 90% of the time, it's just like, it just made me angry. They just asked questions that had, they were just really there, I think, for them to make themselves feel more important and like yeah. great. And they were just not even good questions at all. And so I think just like not asking these type of questions kind of probably helps a lot. And then we are pretty proactive. I mean, I wake up every day before my alarm clock and I just want to do this. There's nothing else I want to do. So we're just think a lot about these projects and uh, it varies, but some projects we probably talk to them like three, four times, a lot of telegram, just like chatting, right? Uh, yeah. Conversations and, uh, and many things. I think some is, I remember, you know, very specifically that was one project that was fantastic, but had almost kind of just to be nice and open done like a small public sale, but it really fell just in the hands of like complete flipper speculators. And um, they just like started really getting aggressive in the telegram. They just wanted this thing to list so they could flip it. 
you know, so open up and go or um, direct buying up a lot of OTC and just saying, okay, you guys went out, no problem. Uh, we'll buy up everything, really clean up the cap table. So that's almost like pre-IPO work, right? You're making sure that that sort of the investor base is is just better for the team and helps them because if all day long they have to mm-hmm. uh, answer questions on, uh, on you know, when, no, we can't talk about exchanges. This is the fifth hundred time I'm saying this today. We cannot talk about exchanges. You know, if you can take that off their mind, that's already super helpful. Sometimes a lot of it is, is storytelling. It's just how do you frame it? Um, a bit of our strategy is that we help European projects. They tend the quality tends to be very high, but they're not a good, not as good as Americans at communicating, at telling stories. And so a lot of it is just at least even just making them aware that this deficit exists and this is something they should work on and be more open and communicative uh, because a lot of this space is evangelism and, uh, you know, winning sort of hearts and minds. It's very, very important. It could be just that, food for thought. Uh, like, like, this matters a lot. And, uh, and you know, it, it will really help you if you become world-class at this as well because you're competing with, you know, Americans who are extremely good at this uh, and also projects in Asia are also very good at, uh, at uh, communicating. Obviously, the typical one is put together investment rounds, help the teams really understand which type of investor is a good fit, which one is not, or even just letting them know, like, yeah, talk to this investor. I know they like this. Um, you could have a great investor, but they just don't, at this moment, they don't believe in this sort of sector or theme, right? It's very theme driven here. Mm-hmm. And so you have some investors that just at this moment, this is not, uh, you know, you shouldn't talk to them. I always like this a lot. We try to do, do this as well. Specific help on emails. Like you get an email from an investor, like how exactly should you answer? Because investors are ADD. And if there's just something, you know, it needs to be an email that they can like on the phone, in the car, and in an Uber, look at for five seconds and it kind of just like feels right and they want to proceed. It's actually quite a lot of art and skill to craft emails like that. Mm-hmm. So something like that as well. Yeah, It's quite, yeah. it's a lot of like, individual like operational things try to i think there is a lot of um high value stuff that is actually very easy for us to give because it's just uh, we've seen it before uh, i will say uh you know i i'm friends with a couple of the founders that you've backed and they always speak very highly of the value you guys add they just say they they really care and they just work with us uh every day i think that just helps a lot so i guess oh that's great to hear yeah i won't name any names so let's let's pivot the dis- discussion for a second. I think we've spent a lot of time on how you think about early stage investing, uh, especially in, in the team and, and founders and stuff. But let's talk about specifically products and, and sectors and things like that. There's different applications or uh, subsectors of projects that are popping up on these Turing Complete uh, smart contract platforms, DeFi being one of them, Web3 is another big narrative, gaming, right? How do you think about valuations currently? Which of those subsectors give you a lot of confidence to invest? Is there sort of a fan favorite of yours? Uh, uh, yeah, let's, let's start with which of those subsectors that you like to invest in right now. So we see we see uh, sectors emerging that are noteworthy is is DeFi, is Web three, and is payments. And I would maybe put them in the order that DeFi and payments, and then Web three in terms of when they will sort of come to fruition. It's also then again like what do we think actually is what is the timeline and how important are they and how big are they and then what sort of the rest of the investor community the narrative is at the moment i think the narrative is starting to become that web3 is a little bit farther out Um, for us very specifically payments is actually the most mainstream ready we are investors in terra 
Yeah, and, and by uh, by payments, you're talking about uh, stable coins, anything built on top of stable coins. Yeah, sort of okay. uh, payment networks, pretty coin agnostic, or they have a stable coin, uh, right? And we have Terra, so for a presentation, I just constantly have had to update the numbers, say, oh, they have uh, 240,000 users, and then the next day, it's like, oh, actually, now it's like 300,000. So we've seen actually with Terra is one of the most used blockchains now in the world after, within the first month. And so I think if you're an entrepreneur that can use the technology, but then also create layers on top, uh, sort of middle layer uh, software that makes it extremely easy for an e-commerce shop just to integrate it and use it. You have the adoption strategy, which Terra has uh, very strongly because of the network. I don't know too much about uh, Terra. Uh, so Terra what, is a tenement fork um, that is a, a payment network, uh, has its own stable coin, has, actually has many different stable coins. And their value proposition is actually very simple. It's if you're an e-commerce company in Asia, you're lucky if you have 50%, 50 basis point margins. Usually you're fighting with some other over, overfunded startup and you're losing money and you're paying, uh, I think you said the numbers yesterday, around 250 basis points payment costs. Yeah. And then it'll up and down to around uh, maybe 100 for the potentially uh, 10 basis points in the future and next day payment. But, you know, you need a very strong commercial strategy. What I didn't, what, what I saw lacking in Bitcoin back then, we saw that with Terra, right? So one of the co-founders was a founder of Ticket Monster, which was at the time the largest Korean e-commerce player. And so off the bat, they had an alliance of 15 e-commerce companies in Korea or Southeast uh, or Asia, sorry, uh, with around 25 billion in sales that was going to integrate this, right? So very strong, uh, adoption strategy software licenses they talk a lot with regulators they have uh the equivalent of money transmission license uh e-payment service licenses etc and they they just sort of use uh, a payment network that's blockchain based and use the advantages of it to really offer a very compelling product to e-commerce shops and customers who just want to buy diapers and don't mm -hmm. care about blockchain so i think the other project that has been able to do that is flexa in the us so they it's also basically a payments network which uh, you guys are always also investors we're in. also invested in that yep it's they use the existing gift card rails for merchants have a custodial wallet SDK that any wallet in the in the world can integrate. They're token agnostic, so you can pay with Bitcoin, USDC, uh, Dai, whatever. And it just takes it's it creates a one time gift card code. So it's a QR code that's essentially a gift card for these merchants. So the amazing thing about it is that they no new hardware, no new software, no employee training, and that's incredibly important for merchants. They don't want another iPad piling up on that on the counter. And so you just scan this QR code, and that. For the, at that moment, it's paid for the merchant. The whatever five die are taken from my phone or from the wallet that has the SDK integrated uh, is sent to them. They sell it, and then the evening they send a wire transfer to the merchant. And so that's a game changer for for retail payments. And so we see those are actually really ready, and are probably the ones that are getting the most uh, mainstream adoption right now. But it it took. There's another very exciting project in Silicon Valley where we see that potential as well for online payments in the U.S. By the name of Wire. Uh, no, it's actually, it's it's called Echo. And I okay. think the name is out. I think yesterday they announced it. It's sort of, it's a great team. It's really, uh, and their Silicon Valley is very good at building sort of like Stripe, right? They were just really good at building a developer experience for an enterprise developer to make it incredibly easy to integrate payments. And, and so we see payments as very ready. And actually, if the right team comes together, you know, incredible adoption and, and, and traction. Then I say DeFi has a lot of traction mainly within crypto sort of users, possibly very soon and consumers because something like Arjun, et cetera, just makes it as easy as a mobile banking app to sort of participate in, in DeFi. 
For that, we really we invested and we really like Nexus Mutual, which is a mutual insurance where you can uh, insure against the risk, the smart contract risk of these DeFi protocols. We like that for many reasons, uh, but we also liked it because it's almost like an index bet on DeFi. I don't know if Compound Maker, et cetera, is going to win, but a portion of that value locked up in or being handled in this financial ecosystem is going to be insured through Nexus Mutual. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like an index bet on, on DeFi. And I think they're, uh, you know, very strong traction within crypto users already and with the potential to break out into the mainstream very quickly. It just takes someone like Argent plus like a banking license, for example, maybe in Europe, which is actually not that hard to get. Good Facebook marketers, Instagram marketers, whatever. Boom, you've got a saving accounts that can be used by people who don't care about crypto. They just want really great savings, uh, you know, compared to negative interest rates. It's pretty compelling. <laughs> right. And then we have Web3, uh, which is to summarize is we really like this concept of protocol marketplaces for computing. If you look at what we think is creates a lot of magic and something pretty uh, unbelievable is the fact that you have a permissionless, perfect competition supply side protocol. Let me let me rephrase that. So you basically, instead of AWS, sort of they you know you rent servers from them, computing certain computing functions. They set up their servers, they you know rent them to you for three times the price it costs them. And every once in a while they have an innovation cycle, but they're kind of just running there. And uh, you know, you, in theory you have competition through, you know, my Google Cloud, et cetera. But it's hard because once you have uh, uh, you know very serious infrastructure with a lot of traction on on one platform, it's hard to move over. But compare that to let's say something like Bitcoin proof of work mining, right? It's permissionless. Anybody in the world can plug in their, their supply side, can compete on that. It is perfect competition because there's no transaction costs in terms of onboarding. You don't need to negotiate. You don't need to sign agreements. There's no friction in the sense that this guy took me to the strip club, you get the deal, you didn't, you don't get it, right? That's always friction. That is something that hinders competition. The transaction costs are really zero. There are no fees in the middle. And pretty much every five minutes, there's a global competition for the block rewards, right? And so this perfect competition just has amazing effects on innovation. Um, so in the last six years alone, so since the beginning of ASICs, the energy efficiency of Bitcoin mining went up 130x. And we think it's because of that. When you have this perfect competition, it really drives down prices amazingly and creates a lot of innovation. And so we're making the case that we're extrapolating that um, towards different forms of computation and uh, storage. And I think we have another data point that supports this is with LifePeer, mm-hmm. where it's a video transcoding sort of protocol marketplace. It's the same con- concept. Because it's open and even there's incentives behind it and, and to try to innovate around it, some uh, Bitcoin miners figured out that while they're mining Bitcoin, it can actually also do this computation, this rendering, at an incremental 15 cents of electricity cost for something that AWS right now charges $144. Yeah. So in that specific sector where computation, storage, bandwidth essentially are being commoditized, are there specific token models that make more sense for value accrual? In a very general sense, obviously, we look for uh, low velocity. That's sort of the you know the monetary theory that you will have more value accrual. Um, if it's just a payment token, it's probably not that good. If it's really just sort of they buy it, give it to the miner, yeah, the miner it feels sells like it. A point of friction. Yeah, 
Well, not necessarily. That can be abstracted away with something like Kyber, et cetera, right? You can have wire, a fiat onboarding that connects to Kyber, converts to the token, can all be abstracted away. But it's more, it's just that really people buy it and then the miner immediately sells it, which sort of in theory right now you have with Ethereum, you have that with Bitcoin. That's really not the best token model. So locking them up for staking is generally pretty good. I know it's not that hip right now. So people, you know, some of the investors are like, well, staking, we don't know if the value accrual happens there. So what is next? We've seen some very, very interesting token models. Uh, Nervos has a very interesting token model yeah. without going into too much detail. Uh, Fluence as well. That's another project of ours that's sort of essentially building a decentralized cloud or a, a DC2, uh, we call it instead of EC2, AWS, uh, a DC2. And they have very interesting token models uh, that also incentivizes developers to innovate on top of the platform in terms of components. We're really amazed at the innovation in the space because again, right, your ideas, teams, they spec them, they put it out there, they want feedback. And 50 other teams are looking at it and say, this is great. We're going to take what we think is the best parts of it and, and integrate it in our models. So I'm constantly surprised about the ingenuity uh, when it comes to that. Yeah, it makes your uh, job a little bit easier too, because you can essentially rely on a network of other people to uh, opine on these different token models. And uh, yeah, and sometimes it's coming back to how we try to be helpful. So we've uh, had this with one specific project where we just said, "Have a look at this project," which was also is also in our portfolio. They just uh, released their design, and it's really interesting. They took some really good components of it and integrated it in their own model. They adapted it. Can't just copy it one to one. Doesn't necessarily make sense, but um, yeah, it's amazing. It's I mean, it's just personally, it's so much fun to follow the space. Let's talk about the scene in Berlin in particular. I know you guys are global investors. You're not specifically just focused on in Berlin, but uh, what kind of projects tend to uh, be out here and, and find a home here? What What do you see more of uh, specifically in Berlin? It's generally really brilliant technical founders from mostly Europe, but kind of all over the world. And they come to Berlin and they build their projects here and they find amazing uh, developers here or they bring them in. Germany has a massive advantage. The immigration system is very efficient. And we did this before as founders. You can bring in a developer. There's so much talent, engineering talent, east from here, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, incredible amounts of talent. And it takes you about six weeks and 250 euros to bring that person into the country. They have a work visa and they're here. And it's predictable. It's annoying as hell. Mm -hmm. Tons of paper shuffling. But if you have a person that takes care of that, you can bring them in and it's it's predictable. And so this is what we see really good founders that build out their teams here. Germans themselves, we also had this with tech in Berlin. Actually, the German founders, they generally tend to be more business types. So they did, did like fast follow copycats sort of stuff in the venture space. In crypto, we don't have them yet. I am, you know, they're Agnosis, they're German guys, but they were in Silicon Valley before. So I would also not count them as a typical German crypto founders. So yeah, it's very technical, uh, brilliant people, someone like Gavin Wood, someone like Sam Williams from Weave, and they come here and they build out the projects here. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see any American founders uh, find a home here? We were one of the initiators of this blockchain week here in Berlin, and mm-hmm. this is sort of the idea. I mean, Americans are always nice, right? So they always compliment you on the city you're living in. But uh, we we do get a lot of people saying, man, maybe I should uh, live here and move here. You know, if it makes sense, we're not, I don't have like some sort of subsidy agenda that I need everyone (laughs) to move to Berlin and, you know, become the new Silicon Valley, blah, blah, blah. 
But uh, you know, it's it's great that people come here, they experience it, and they can see what it has to offer. If it's a good fit, we've recommended some projects to move here, and they came here. Yeah, we we've talked about this uh, earlier. Maybe it was right before uh, we started recording. But most of the Silicon Valley based founders tend to focus on users and growing substantial businesses, and it's mostly because the VCs there are also focused on hey, uh, build something that users really want to use. The VCs are often hounding to uh, make sure that the value is accrued, things like that. Do you find that those kind of founders, if, if they were to come here, they would be kind of against the grain or against the ethos of, of more of like the Berlin blockchain scene? Yeah, they are. So this is really interesting. The Silicon Valley was, okay, they looked like pretty early into Bitcoin mainly, 2013, 2014, a few. Uh, wasn't really investable. Some did this sort of uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin investments, but it kind of didn't go nowhere. And then they were kind of late, like sort of early 2017, Silicon Valley really started piling into, uh, right? And some did their mega ICOs and they kind of like yeah, jumped on the train. Mostly led by Polychain um, and Pantera. Yeah, a few of those deal. funds. And what I really like though, is that the it, it changed the ecosystem, the global one. There was basically now we also have this input and and sort of thought from Silicon Valley. And as you said, they are very focused on building something that people want to use. Right, build something you want is Y Combinator. It drills, it hammers. Literally their slogan. Yeah, exactly, it, and want. they're very, very. You know, they make sure that they hammer this into everyone's head, and I think it is incredibly important. And especially in Berlin, sometimes you would have even the tech space before founders who were just like building something they think that they like without getting any validation ever. If everyone ever wants to use this, other than asking their mom and their friends, and so we actually really like that the that crypto as a global ecosystem got some of that food for thought and sort of some of that influence from Silicon Valley, which is very user focused. Yeah. So I think that's actually, I'm very glad that sort of now we've been able to enrich the global crypto ecosystem with, uh, with Silicon Valley and their ways of doing it. On the other side, I think maybe one legacy bag that Silicon Valley had is just so established and so successful in venture capital. And one sort of very strong narrative was raise as much money as you can when you can. And I think that is actually extremely detrimental to crypto projects for a number of reasons. I think we've seen we're seeing that play out actually, where you know it's just so ingrained to raise a lot of money from two, three great name VCs, and that's that was great for venture capital. It actually made sense. It was the best way to do it, not for crypto. So I would say that maybe might have been a disadvantage um, that sort of the the first Silicon Valley based projects had. But other than that, it's a it's it's a great input. It's now, I think, San Francisco with Berlin is the, in my opinion, you know, those are the two most important, more technical ecosystems. You have Asia as a whole, it's just far, far ahead in terms of adoption. And something like Terra, I, they're integrated, I think, with 13 out of 15 uh, Korean banks, direct partnerships. Uh, I think it, it'll be a long time before that happens in Europe. And I think even in the US, you'll be hard pressed to find that much corporate collaboration, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think now it feel it's still that no ecosystem has you know has it all, which in tech Silicon Valley really had it all. You could just be there and that's it. Um, but these are global networks, and Berlin I would I would uh, describe it as that Berlin is probably the most authentic sort of cypherpunk, hardcore technologist, uh, decentralization enthusiast or proponents ecosystem. Very high technical talent, and and yeah, very down the stack. Silicon Valley is kind of in the middle, so it has mm -hmm. some of the really, really good researchers and, and protocol talent, but then also stronger commercial sense. Mm -hmm. And then Asia has 
it has some, but very few really world-class protocol teams, but very few. Really the strong suit is the commercial aspect of it, integrating with corporates, working with them, and not just some stupid POC, uh, exchanges, uh, OTC desks, et cetera, far, far ahead of uh, Europe and the US. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, this was a very enlightening conversation. I'm sure our audience is going to love it as well. Uh, last very simple question I have for you, Lasse. Where can people get in touch with you, read about the work at, that 1KX is doing? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually don't write yet. We don't, we don't find the time. I always wonder how everybody else does it. I'm really jealous they have time to write these really thoughtful medium posts. Uh, maybe we'll get around to it at some point. I think it's actually just to follow us on Twitter or me on Twitter. We're not very public. We don't, we just try to help the founders all the time and that kind of keeps us busy. Um, yeah, I guess Twitter would be the way to do it. Okay. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or the wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.